In tonight's sermon, um, we're going to be exploring all of Acts chapter 25 and 26, but the Bible reading will just be the back, of it, back end of that from verse 9. So if you'd like to take out your Bibles um, and turn to Acts chapter 26, verse 19, sorry, not 9. Um, and so the key thing to note um, about this is that Paul is giving his defense to the governing rulers of the day, um, and he's just given his testimony similar to what we heard a couple of weeks ago in that sermon. So beginning in verse 19, this is Paul speaking. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, Nice to see you all. Good that the live stream people can join us as well. As we approach God's word, uh, let me pray. Our good and gracious God, uh, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that the Lord Jesus came and that his message rang out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, and that's come to us today. And as we even think about uh, Jasmine's story there of people who are hearing your your gospel in new and creative ways. Uh, we thank you that your, your gospel is not chained, that it continues to go forth. Father, we pray that as we open it this evening, that you will speak powerfully through me, that by your spirit we'll be convicted to the things that you want us to do, to understand and to be, as we are formed to the likeness of Jesus and see his kingdom come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was uh, particularly encouraged by Jasmine's story there. Um, I hope you were too, in the, in the kind of ways that we see the gospel go out, uh, and in some ways it makes no relevance to Acts here, uh, because this is all face-to-face, but here we have people coming to faith through video. Uh, absolutely incredible. But the relevance that it does have to this passage is that people have a real heart for the gospel. They have a heart for people to see 
them come to know who Jesus is and what it means for them uh, to be in relationship with Jesus. And that's what Paul has been all about. That's what Paul has been about uh, throughout Acts, uh, uh, throughout his life. And as we've been checking, trekking throughout this book in Acts, and as we've been going through this series to the ends of the earth, we've been seeing Paul do that exact thing. Uh, we've seen him come to, we've been going all around the Mediterranean, then he's come to Jerusalem, then he's got arrested, and he's on this kind of mission to Rome. Uh, but people are trying to kill him. He's had a, a couple assassination attempts, uh, and then he's had a couple trials. Three, in fact, before we get to this time. Uh, he's been kind of rushed out of Jerusalem. He's been kind of go, 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 go. And then we get to Acts chapter 24, uh, verse 27, and it goes, two years passed, and Paul was left in prison. Like, two years. Like, this guy's been go, 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 go. And then for two years, he's had to stop. He's been uh, sitting around in prison. Like, we think COVID lockdowns are bad. Like, this is two years. He's thinking he's going to Rome, and he's hanging around in prison. Now, I'm not sure we're not told what God's personal kind of purpose was for that uh, time in Paul's life. But just as like a passing comment as we go through, I don't know, if you're in a season of waiting, you're in a season of frustration, you're in a season of like, you're trying to be motivated towards whatever God has got for you in your life, and you just sit there, step into that. Don't waste that opportunity. Think, reflect, pray into what it is that God could use in this moment uh, in your life to see how the Holy Spirit could be making you more into likeness of Christ. And now that's just a, just a passing comment. But for Paul here, he had that time, and now things are kind of come uh, back to life for him. So I hope you got your, your Bibles open there. Uh, he's had those two quiet years. And we read that now Festus is on the scene. Now, that, lang- that name doesn't really translate well into English. A bit unfortunate before Festus. A uh, bit of an unfortunate name. But he is a kind of mostly upright character, especially in comparison to Felix, who was the governor before him. So this Festus guy, uh, he comes in, and he immediately goes down to Jerusalem. So he arrives on the scene, he goes down there to see the, uh, the Jewish leaders. Now, Paul may have felt forgotten, but the Jewish leaders certainly haven't forgotten Paul. It's two years, but they see this opportunity. Okay, new governor, let's get Paul back on the scene. Let's get him down here. We want to kill him. Now, Festus is kind of a bit aloof to that at this point. Uh, and he, go, he pretty much says, oh, yeah, Paul, yeah, I, I know that guy. Yeah, he's in my new residence up north in Caesarea. I'm actually going to go there in a few days' time. Come with me. We'll sort out whatever grievance you have up there. Uh, it'll all be good kind of thing. We'll, we'll tackle it in a couple of days' time. Now, the Jews have no kind of say in it. They've got to listen to him. They go up in, in 10 days' time to bring their charges before Paul. Now, Festus, he opens the proceedings, and the Jewish leaders, they, they chuck out his charges again. Now, Luke isn't even kind enough to tell us what they have to say because they have nothing new to say. They have just all the same stuff. He just says in verse 7, they brought many serious charges against him, but they couldn't prove them. So at this point, though, Paul, he's, he gives a bit of a defense, declares his innocence, 
nothing against the Jews. I've done nothing against the law. I've done nothing against you, the Romans. He declares himself innocent. And then Festus says, trying to win a bit of brownie points, Paul, can, can you come with me, mate? Can you come down to Jerusalem? The Jews are a bit upset with you. Let's go down to Jerusalem. We'll have this trial down there. Paul has none of that. I'm not going to have any of that. He basically says, I'm not guilty of it. You have no right to do it. I'm standing before you now. This is the moment. I'm willing to die if I've done something wrong, but I haven't. But he also sees it as an opportunity. If you remember a couple weeks back, he, he showed that he was a Roman citizen. And he wants to bring out a particular right that he has. He brings out his like advance to Mayfair card or advance to Rome. He says, I appeal to Caesar. Now that's pretty clever. Uh, it's, a, it's a good ploy of Paul. Because basically that appeal to Caesar is only available to Roman citizens. And what it does, it basically means whatever trial was before a Roman citizen, they could say, all right, I'll bypass this trial and take it straight to the top. Take it straight to Caesar. Now, whatever Caesar says goes, but they have that right. And so Paul uh, wants to do that. Paul consults his, Festus consults his advisors, and then kind of this nice, you know, dramatic rhetorical flourish. You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar... And that's kind of what happens. Now, Paul knows at this point the mission that Jesus has sent him on. If you remember back to chapter 23, Jesus appealed, appeared to him in a vision and says, as you've witnessed to me in Jerusalem, you now need to witness to me in Rome. And Paul sees this as a fantastic way to get there. He knows he's going to have to stand uh, before Caesar now to set him free. Now, Caesars are the most powerful people uh, in the world at that point, but they're not the most mentally stable. And this is Caesar Nero. If you know anything about Nero, Nero is the guy that is said to have set Rome on fire, and he's the guy who uh, did crazy persecution against the Christians. But this doesn't intimidate Paul. He's not really concerned whether he's going to get a fairer trial in front of Festus or get a fairer trial in front of Nero. doesn't seem to be his concern. What his concern is is the mission that Jesus has sent him on, and Paul wants to be faithful to that mission. And what we see here is actually a really good example of kind of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Jesus has said to Paul, you're going home. But Paul faithfully does what he can, that whatever's kind of in his control and as the Holy Spirit directs him, he doesn't sit around, he doesn't do nothing, he doesn't just, you know, just see what happens. He prays and he acts faithfully with the opportunities that are before him. Jesus said to Paul, you need to testify to him in Rome. Paul does this by using the appeal to Caesar to get there. And then we can move uh, to the next part of the narrative. So verse 13, we meet uh, a new character, and his name is King Agrippa. He's actually the grandson of Herod the Great. If you remember the guy that was around when Jesus was born, the one that was uh, killing babies, this is his great-grandson. So he's Jewish. He knows the law. 
He knows the prophets. He's well acquainted with the Jewish people. And he comes to meet Festus. So Festus is coming to the town. The Jewish king's like, well, I need to get in good relationship with this guy. So he comes in, he chats with Festus, uh, and they basically start chatting about Paul. Kind of shares what he's going on, his, his issues, uh, and basically says, I don't really understand what's going on. I don't understand why these Jews are so upset at him. But in verse 19, they have points of dispute about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed to be alive. That's the key issue here. The key issue here is that Jesus is resurrected. He died on the cross. He was crucified by the Romans. The Romans know they're good at it. And this guy rose from the dead. And then Agrippa says something quite interesting. Agrippa has no jurisdiction over Paul at this point. Paul is a Roman citizen in Roman custody. Nothing to do with his Jewish king. But Paul's story has caught his attention. The way that Paul has lived, the message that he around preaching, the effect that it has had, has got Agrippa intrigued. And he says, verse 22, I would like to hear this man myself. He wants to know what this is all about. This prisoner is not like the others. This prisoner is different. He has a different message. He has a different way of life. The effects are felt. Paul has lived differently in the world. His message is different and Agrippa wants to know about it. Agrippa is asking questions. And when we live differently in the world people start asking questions. When we live the ethics of the kingdom of God, and we live out that Jesus is Lord, and we live it out, and it, it seems to be different in this world, it's different to the culture around us, it's the upside-down kingdom, in many ways, it's provocative. Not because we're trying to be provocative, but because when we are simply and we're living out the beautiful and the good values of the kingdom of God, by its nature, it's provocative. The way we live and we think is going to be attractively different to the world around us. So can I please encourage you, just continue to live your lives to the glory of God. Continue to live out the ethics of the kingdom of God. And people will notice Maybe not straight away, but in your home, in your work, in your family life, neighbors, randoms, like whoever it may be, we live it out and maybe people will notice. I think they will. Because when we are unusually and overly generous, it's strange. When we work just as hard when the boss is watching and when he's not, we when we spend our time or our weekends, some of our holiday ministry, people think it's a waste of time. When we are quick to forgive, it is the opposite of what we see going on in our world. It's a bit provocative. It's attractively different. People are curious. They're intrigued by our lifestyle, intrigued, intrigued by the decisions that we make. I remember three years ago when I decided that I would quit my job uh, at Littman Construction Management Company uh, and pursue this to, to work in pastoral ministry, all my work colleagues were super confused. 
that they thought it was strange. They thought it was a bit weird. They weren't angry at me for it. They weren't like, you know, you're an idiot. But they were confused. They were intrigued. Remember this one guy in particular, he was the same age as me. We were having lunch. And it was a few weeks later after it got announced. And he came like, Matt, like, are you sure you know what you're doing? Is this really what you want? Like, you're about to have a kid in a month's time. You've got a mortgage. You're like, we've been told the pay rise we're going to get. Like, what are you doing? And I was able to share with him, like, the hope of the Lord. See the love that I had for Jesus in the church because of the decisions that I'd made. Now, and that's not to, to say I want everyone to quit, quit your job. Don't do that. But whatever situation that God has put us in, when we live out the ethics of the kingdom of God, people are going to be intrigued and they're going to ask questions. And we'd be ready, we'd be faithful to the opportunities that come our way. To come back to the narrative, now Paul has his opportunity. He's before Agrippa and he's before Festus and the scene is set. When you look at verse 23, uh, we read how Festus uh, sorry, how Agrippa, he comes in with all his pomp and ceremony, all the prominent men of the city. Like, it's like this crazy movie scene, like panoramic, grand, people coming in, the music's playing, like it's a big scene. All these people saying, look how good, look how amazing I am. That is the scene that Paul is walking into. The rulers, the prominent, powerful people of the land. Festus gives his opening address. The Jews want him dead. Paul, you're going to Rome. And then Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak. As if to say, what possibly could be so important to you that you would put your life on the line for this? That people would want you dead? That you to risk your life to go before Nero for this message? Paul, please explain. And so Paul starts his speech. It's his final speech before uh, people uh, who aren't Christians in the book of Acts. It's to many people, but Paul in his mind kind of has an audience of one, Agrippa. He directs it to him multiple times uh, and constructs his message and tailors it to him. Now the strategy Paul uses here is actually very similar to what he did in chapter 22. If you remember where we're here, we're talking about testimony and how Paul used his testimony in front of the Jewish raging, rioting mob. Paul does a very similar thing here in chapter uh, 26. He gives his testimony. How he was a Jew, really zealous. He loved the law. He wanted to persecute Christians. He then met Jesus. It was a crazy, incredible experience. Uh, he submitted to him, and then Jesus has sent him on this mission to go to the Gentiles, to go to the ends of the earth, to turn them from darkness to light, to show them uh, the Lord Jesus and the way. Now, we won't explore much of that. We did that uh, two weeks ago. But I want to ho- uh, point out a couple other things which Paul does a bit differently in this testimony. Firstly, when Paul gives his defense here, he actually turns it into offense. He shares the gospel, uh, he shares the gospel message through his story. Like even right at the beginning, if you look at verses 6 and 8, he restates the charges that the Jewish people have against him, but in a way that shares the gospel. He says, the reason I'm on trial is because of the hope, 
because of the hope that I have. God has promised all these, and I'm just saying they've happened. They're true. This is the hope which I have. That's why I'm on trial. Like, I love the way Paul was just creative and simple in the way that he shares the gospel. And the sermon is really wonderful things in this speech. In many ways, a lot of commentators are saying this kind of really lays down Paul's theology in his testimony, what it means to be a missionary, uh, be a person who is sharing about uh, the message of the Lord Jesus. So I encourage you, read it in full, uh, reflect on it and pray, see what the Holy Spirit draws to your mind. But there's three other key themes to draw out tonight. The first one is the fulfillment of Scripture. The message of Jesus uh, that Paul is proclaiming is that all the stories of the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus. They're not just like siloed, one-off, fun, moral truth, historical stories that are just for the sake of it. No, in some way, shape, or another, they are pointing towards Jesus. Either Jesus directly fulfills them, or there's those really horrible moments in the Old Testament which are showing what the earth looks like, what humanity looks like, without King Jesus there. In some way, Jesus is going to bring fulfillment, bring restoration, fulfill all of the Old Testament. It's God's plan for humanity all along. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is plan A. It's God's plan A. There is no alternative to him. Secondly, the message of Jesus is for every person. Absolutely every person. When you have a look at verse 18, 20, and 23, Paul repeatedly says that Jesus' message is chosen for the Gentiles. Now, I know that kind of language doesn't mean heaps for our culture today, but just everyone, every ethnicity in our world, in our society, your next-door neighbor on your left and on your right, the people who are like us, the people who are not like us, our social tribe, uh, people that we like, people that we don't like. The gospel is for all people. The Holy Spirit does not discriminate between who comes to God. And we too are invited to share the message with all people, without prejudice, without bias, to all people. All people invited to hear, repent, and have faith in the Lord Jesus. And then thirdly, Paul hammers home the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you've been at church for hopefully, well, if you've been at church for more than a week, hopefully you've heard about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. At Morning College, the principal there, his name is Ross Clifford. You may have come across him. He loves the resurrection, which is, which is a good thing. But every lecture, it seems, or at least every subject, he tries to incorporate in some way. He makes it work. It's incredible. But he always brings up this uh, chart. It's a bit hard to read. But basically what it says, or what it's saying, is that every time the apostles shared about the message of Jesus to non-Christians, they always shared the resurrection. Every single time. The apostles didn't open their mouth unless they shared about the resurrection of Jesus. In our life, we live out the hope of the resurrection. We will be physically resurrected ourselves, but also we are being spiritually resurrected. We have been spiritually resurrected now. The resurrected Christ, he lives in us 
by the Holy Spirit. He is transforming every part of our being into the likeness of Christ. Now, we're not going to achieve it this side of eternity. Uh, We know that. But we don't live as people who are just forgiven of sin and then just live kind of nothingless lives from then. No, we live Christ-empowered, Christ-directed lives from now. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is going to be easy. You don't even need me to tell you that, but life is not going to be easy as a Christian. You're not excluded from suffering in any way. Like Paul is in prison at this moment. He's literally in chains saying this stuff. Suffering is not always going to be taken away from us. But I saw this quote in preparing for this sermon, and I wanted to share it with you. It's from Tim Keller, and he says, The resurrection does not promise that all circumstances of life will go smoothly, but it does give us hope that we can be turned into the kind of people who can handle whatever comes. The resurrection is the center of our faith. It changes our life and it is the center of the message of the gospel. In my experience though, maybe yours, when you speak about the resurrection of Jesus, people think you're a little crazy. People might think you're a little bit insane, think you're a little bit loose not really a rational thinker. For Paul, when he started going on about it, it was exactly the same thing. You see verse uh, 23, after verse 23, Festus interrupts him. It's like, you out of your mind. Paul, your great learning is driving you insane. Like you've lost the plot. Now, Paul, he's not being called insane. Uh, he continues to go on declaring his confidence. And I think we can take great confidence ourselves from what Paul goes on to say. Because he says, I'm not insane. I'm not insane. What I'm saying is true and it is reasonable. It means it has logic to it. You can think about it and you can determine that it's reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Christian faith, and and particularly the the historical events of Jesus' death and his resurrection, and then the subsequent witness to him are both true and reasonable. And it wasn't done in a corner. It's done out in the open. It was public. People knew it. People saw it. People experienced it. And Agrippa knew it because he was around at the time. And we can know it too because the evidence has been passed down to us, both in the Bible and outside the Bible. The witnesses, the empty tomb, the, the, the evidence of the disciples' change of heart and lifestyle. Now, if you have questions about Jesus, can I encourage you to keep asking them? We're allowed, and I think even encouraged to ask questions of Jesus. In the gospel, there's so many questions that are asked about Jesus. And in our time, if you're in that position, please investigate. Ask your questions. Scrutinize the evidence. The truth will come out, and at some point, you will have to decide what you're going to do with it. And this is what Paul kind of does with Agrippa. He presents the case of Christianity... And then presents this kind of very intriguing uh, question and interaction. In verse 27, uh, he says, King Agrippa, 
Do you know the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa replies, Do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Now, Paul sees that question, uh, Agrippa, sorry, sees that question as a bit of a dilemma. Um, and like all good politicians, he just evades uh, the hard questions. But Paul's response is really quite beautiful. Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but to all those that are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. A group may have evaded the question, but Paul lays his heart open. He lays it on the line. He displays the heart of what every Christian is called to be and to have. He says, I pray to God that all people will become what I am. Basically saying, a saved disciple of the living Lord Jesus. So in here, in Paul's final witness statement, we have the heart of the message of the gospel. A heart that desires and prays towards seeing people to being saved, to experiencing life to the full, to pray, to seek, to serve all people so that we can share the truth and also the goodness and the beauty of what it means to be in relationship with God. Like Paul, we are called to know the, the, the gospel and to live it out and then to share it in meaningful ways to others. Like in our day, most people, not all, but most people are less concerned with the absolute truth of things and more concerned with like, does it work? Like, is it good? Does it have meaning to me? They're most likely asking questions of like, does it bring purpose to my life? And for all these people, when they're going to be asking those questions, they're most likely going to be asking them in the context of relationship with people that they know, people that they trust, people that they've done life with in some way, shape or form. Or sitting around, going for a walk in your sports team, in work, just when you're, you're playing sport, whatever it may be. Relationships are formed, that is most likely, not always, but most likely to be the place that people are going to discuss these kind of questions and have meaningful discussions. So friends, can I please encourage you and please continue to encourage me. Like, don't dull your calling to live out and to share the gospel. I know it brings fear. I feel it. I know it brings anxiety. I know that there is consequences at times when we share about the message of Jesus. People in our city need him. city needs Jesus. And it's something that we're in together. And it is worth it. And this is our desire at Naui Baptist Church. We want to see lives transformed through Jesus, the glory of God. That's what we're about. That's we, we want our life, ourselves, to be transformed to the image of Jesus, to the glory of God. And we want others to know the love, the hope, the fullness, and the freedom that comes with relationship with Christ. So please continue to live those provocative, intriguing lives. Do them in relationship with others and point them to Christ, point them to his kingdom. And whatever you have the opportunity, however it may come, just faithfully share the hope that you have in Jesus. And we'll see where God takes it.
Let me pray. Our good and great God, we thank you so much that we have a hope worth sharing. That we have a a God who loves us deeply, a son who died on the cross, and a Holy Spirit who he gives us life in your name. Father, we pray that you continue to send us out for your glory. Please help us to continue rooted in Jesus. I pray that you help us to be bold in our relationships. I help us to have those meaningful conversations with people, share the gospel in a way that is going to impact others. And Holy Spirit, may you go before us and convict people uh, to come into relationship with you. Help us to be loving. Please help us to be gentle. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.